situation where the patient has like six medications and she only wants to take two, right? That's all she's going to do, no matter what we tell her, right? <laughs> and so our negotiation with the, with the doc was like, help us understand what is the most important ones that she needs to take. And then the, the PCP, uh, the resident physician was like, no, she needs to take all. I said, I get it, right? And she's not. Hello, welcome to the Integrated Care Podcast from the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association. I am Dr. Grace Pratt, the host of the podcast, and I'm editor, and I'm joined by several of my co-hosts, and we're going to be having a conversation about health literacy today and how that comes up for our patients, how we address it in integrated care, and also how integrated care can specifically help boost patients' health literacy. Before we do that, we're going to start how we usually do with an icebreaker question. And since we're talking about literacy, my mind made a very small leap to a different kind of literacy and reading and books. Personally, I love to read and really enjoy everything from poetry to uh, just total sugary, sweet rom-com trash. I thought that it might be nice to hear from you guys. You know, what have you been enjoying and reading lately uh, as we're doing our introductions? So as we are going around to my left on my screen is Deepu George. All right. Uh, Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. Whenever you're listening to this, if you're driving, running, whatever it may be, uh, welcome to today's uh, podcast. The book that's on, actually, that I'm reading through that I found this past weekend, it's called uh, Secrets of Divine Love, A Spiritual Journey into the Heart of Islam. And it's actually a really, really good book. Um, And so I found it, I went and visited uh, friends and family this weekend, and I saw it at uh, one of my friends, his, his wife was reading it. And then, you know, we talk about spiritual stuff a lot of the times, and she's like, It'll be an honor if you take it. I was like, all right, I'll take it. <laughs> you had to tell me twice to get this book. So uh, it's really, yeah, so it's been a really good read so far. It's a pretty big book, so I'm excited to get through it. Light awesome. reading for Deepu George. <laughs> That's but story. totally on brand. <laughs> <laughs> I... <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, if you'd said Stephen King or something like that, Deepu, I was going to be a little more surprised. You would have been worried? <laughs> no, not worried. Absolutely not. Just surprised. We're reading Calvin and Hobbes lately. <laughs> um, next on my little rotation here is Bridget Beachy. Hi, I'm Bridget. I'm a clinical psychologist by trade, BHC, uh, director out in FQHC here in Washington State. And I'm always reading things, <laughs> L- largely uh, audible enthusiast. So as Deepu was mentioning walking or jogging or driving. Uh, so I'm currently listening to Atlas of the Heart by Brene Brown. I just finished Cast by Isabel Wilkerson. And then I also just finished The Entrepreneur Roller Coaster by Darren Hardy. So all very different books. Cast was amazing. Uh, it the word enjoyable, um, it, it, it was more insightful uh, and very, very deeply important book and helped shape certain things um, that I'd been seeing, but didn't really have words to put to it. So uh, she's a phenomenal writer. Oh my gosh, phenomenal writer. Uh, so yeah, enjoying all three of these. 
and just uh, I look forward to my run because I've paired it with reading so that for the days that you just do not feel like moving your body, it's like, all right, we'll get the book going before I know it. Well, I'm already there. So might as well move my legs. Nice. Uh, I have a question just kind of related, but how's Atlas of the Heart on Audible? Because I've seen the book and it seems like it's got like a lot of colors and it's rich and it's like very visual. So how has the audio been? Well, apparently Brene Brown is all over everything because she talks to you and reads it as though she knows that you're not at your desk. So she'll say things like, okay, I'm going to read this to you again, because I'm assuming that you're, you know, uh, not somewhere where you could take notes and then she'll reread it. And so she uh, talks to you on the book as though she knows that it was made uh, for non-traditional reading or listening environments. So she does a fantastic job. There's a few times where she will say to like, get the downloadable uh, PDF or do this or do that. But she also says that you don't even technically, she's like, you know, don't even worry about it. Don't stress yourself. Uh, So I think she was uh, wildly accommodating. And I think that might be a trend for uh, audiobooks going forward is they're going to talk to you as though knowing you're not going to be able to be at your desk taking notes. It's very well thought out. Of course, I guess I shouldn't be surprised. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And then next we have Neftali Serrano. Oh, wow. Yes, you did it again. Nice. That was great. Thank you. Uh, yes, Natalie Serrano. I am the CEO here at the Cobra Family Healthcare Association and uh, books. So it's going to sound like I'm more nerdy than I am. I guess I am probably pretty nerdy, but um, I'm part of a, a history book group. Uh, this book that we're reading now is pretty heavy. I, mean, I can't say I'm like enjoying it, but it is helpful because it connects with current events. Um, it's called The Future is History, and I forget the author's name, but you obviously can search that up pretty easily. It's a book about how totalitarianism had a revival in Russia. Um, so it's a lot about Russian history in the um, 70s, 80s, 90s, uh, leading up to Putin. And um, it gives you a very good insight into sort of the cultural mind. Um, and actually, there's a there's a, f- a series of chapters that are really interesting for folks in the mental health realm, because I did not know this uh, for a long time in the Soviet Union, um, the fields of, well, social sciences in general, but psychology in particular, were not allowed to essentially develop really up until the 90s when perestroika really took hold or whatever came of that, you know, you had no like, like therapy or mental health or, you know, the idea was that the state would be so perfect that individuals would not need in, you know, personal help as, as weird as it might sound to us like that. When you read it, you're like, Oh wow. Yeah. Philosophically, this makes sense, but it's like crazy. (laughs) And, uh, and so the ironic thing is uh, I'm reading this book. I'm cringing because, when when the doors finally started opening and Western scholars and stuff were able to go over, what mostly got transported at that time was already old for us, which was like psychoanalysis. So a lot of Freudian and older sort of theories were, were uh, brought over and imported. But even that was like pretty new to folks. Um, so yeah, anyway, 
So the future is the is history. Uh, really heavy, thick book. If you really want to lug through a book with the book group, <laughs> it sounds like it'd sold. be a good one to read with friends, so that you have somebody to move through with you. Oh, there's no way. Uh, there's no way I could read this on my own. Uh, right? It's just it's too it's too thick and dense and 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 somewhat depressing too. Because there's a lot of, uh, unfortunately, there's just, uh, I, I don't want to depress our audience, but <laughs> there's just a lot of, there's a lot of parallels with what's going on here in America right now. <laughs> like, That's a different oh. podcast. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm reading a book called The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo, which is a fiction book uh, that is kind of a, imagining an old Hollywood actress and her life and kind of goes through the decades. Um, and then I also am listening to Broken Horses, which is the memoir by musician Brandy Carlisle. And what's really interesting is as she goes through the different chapters, I did specifically get this on Audible because she also has performances of her songs between the chapters and as she's talking about the background and how they were developed. Um, so it's been what well, I love her music anyway. So it's been really wonderful wonderful to to listen to that. Um, I did not introduce myself. I launched right into my books. I am the behavioral medicine faculty at Great Plains Family Medicine in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, where we are welcoming our new class of interns this week and graduating another class on Monday, which I guess that'll be a little behind by the time our listeners, uh, by the time this makes it to you. But it's that time of year, which always feels like exciting, fresh starts as we're moving through the residency calendar anyway. Um, well, thank you all for sharing what you've been reading and sharing those recommendations. I know that we have a little bit of news and notes to get to before we start our main conversation. All right. Yes. A uh, couple of things to share with you inside CFHA here. So one is just a reminder of our annual conference. Registration is now open. Um, we're really excited to meet in Boise, Idaho this October. You can check out information at our website, integratedcareconference.com. Uh, we've got a great set of plenaries. Plenaries are when we get together as a community. And we've got a great set of concurrent sessions. Those are when we break out into different groups. And we also have a really well-developed set of extended learning opportunities. That's where you could do deep dives and sort of more training-oriented type materials as well. So you can check that all at the website, integratedcareconference.com. It's going to be exciting because it's the first time we're back together since COVID. We're really excited to see you all in Boise, Idaho, including, by the way, uh, one of our plenary experiences is us. You, you get to, if you're a fan of this podcast and you want to see us live and in person, do our thing and uh, see us actually... Uh, struggle with actually seeing each other in person instead of on screens the whole time. Uh, one of our plenary experiences will be a live uh, recording of this podcast up on stage. It's going to be fun. Second news and note here is we have at CFHA special interest groups. They're just groups that get together around topical areas. So one of our special interest groups is pediatrics, and they are really trying to respond to the national mental health crisis uh, that several key organizations have um, highlighted, not that any of us needed to be told that there was a crisis. Uh, most of us who are in clinics these days understand how uh, the frequency of kids um, and families coming in with uh, things like suicidal ideation, uh, increased rates of anxiety, depression, et cetera, 
um, how that's all been affected by a variety of factors over the last few years. And so I um, just want to encourage you to check out a, um, a series of, uh, well, there's a blog post on, on our website and in, in, on the Inside CFHA section. We can put that in the show notes for you. And a series of, it details a series of initiatives and, and areas that they are going to be focusing on as a group in order to upskill their members to respond to the needs of, of children and adolescents in primary care settings. Um, so we'll put that in the news and notes, but I want to give a big shout out. Of course, our last podcast conversation was on pediatrics, and we interviewed one of the leaders, Maria Rojo, from the uh, from the pediatric SIG. So if you're interested in joining that, you can also go on the website and join that as well. So that's our news and notes. Awesome. Yeah. I was going to direct people. If you haven't listened to last month's episode yet, that was such a great opportunity to have a conversation and hear about all the cool things their SIG is doing. And it sounds like a really inclusive, welcoming group. They were saying, just jump right in. Um, well, we are going to shift up to our main topic of conversation about health literacy. And I wonder if we could start by just kind of developing a working definition. So when we say health literacy based on our clinical understanding and our understanding of what's in the literature, what does that mean? I actually have a little curriculum that I make residents go through. So I have some cheat notes here. So I can kind of pull some uh, baseline uh, references for us to kind of get started. Perfect. Um, so essentially, it's the skills that people need to participate in their healthcare system uh, and maintain good health. And this includes reading, writing, calculating numbers, communicating accurately with healthcare professionals, and nowadays using health technology. Right. So we are integrating more and more uh, glucose monitoring devices, accessing the portal, being able to kind of look at your labs on the portal or look at your results on the portal. And so there's health literacy. And then there's what I've heard called health numeracy, right? which is like essentially, can you understand what does titration mean? And can you make decisions based on your readings and adjust your medications based on your readings, right? So there's a lot of self-management that comes into play. Um, that's kind of the baseline for health literacy as to how we think about it. And it's the degree to which individuals have the capacity to really uh, take what we give them, process it, and then understand what we consider basic health information and services. And then when they go back to their homes, we want or we hope that they'll make appropriate health decisions. And that's a huge, that's a tall order. Now I'm curious, Deepu, about, uh, it sounds like an amazing curricula. I'm assuming you work in there for the clinician to be able to gather the patient's context. So in the words of Dr. David Bauman, you don't ask patients to do dumb shit. <laughs> That might be the fastest we've gotten to context and shit in a podcast. I think, I think we just, you just broke the record. That's great. That's right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, how do you guys incorporate that where it's like part of health literacy is understanding that patient's context so that you don't just fly in and say, okay, you need to do X, Y, and Z. That's mm -hmm. a huge 
huge, huge part of the curriculum that we've added. Yeah. So one is um, understanding who the patient is. We always talk about the intervention doesn't make sense if we don't know anything about what the average day of the patient looks like and what they have to deal with on a daily basis. That usually gives you a good sense of like where they are in their headspace. Like even when you're agenda setting in the beginning, like the patient is just concerned about, I don't know, a little uh, mark on their skin versus we know that like their A1C is like, you know, out of control and um, their blood pressure is out of control. So we kind of know like there is a huge gap between understanding what may be a primary concern today versus what the patient really wants to get addressed today, right? So, and then in addition to that as just really understanding the context, we we have these little badge cards that we've developed for our residents to, if they ever forget the contextual interview, they can always like refer to it uh, that they hang on their badge. So that's definitely a big part of it. The other part of it, we emphasize um, for residents and some of our behavioral health trainees is to really not use language, right? Like language that is very medical. Um, Like don't say titrate, right? (laughs) So that's not going to fly very well with with an average patient. Yeah. I think there's an overlap of various areas. And you guys can actually fill in because I feel like there's probably some I'm missing here. But I think there's health literacy, which the way Deepu uh, defined it is fantastic. It's circumscribed. It's around essentially the intellectual capacity of the patient to absorb and process and then enact information, right? But then closely overlapping that is what Bridget's talking about, where you have contextual factors, right? And you can even overlay onto that cultural factors, and just basic linguistic factors. And then you also have sort of, um, (laughs) for those of you who are not watching this, I have my hands up as usual, using a visual, right? And there's these concentric circles, right? So you've got health literacy, you've got the impact of context, culture, linguistics. And then I think a third overlapping area is um, the area of, of motivation, and uh, importance and values and um, what we would probably attend to if we're doing good motivational interviewing with someone, right? And I think attending to those three pieces, unless you guys think I'm missing something, I think is core to that whole notion uh, that Deepu was talking about, about actually having an effective intervention where the patient absorbs, assimilates, agrees, commits, and then enacts a recommendation. Am I missing something, guys? Is this something I'm... No, I think it sounds great. I think from my original understanding of health literacy, I kind of had seen it uh, not so overlapping, like as a new clinician, I didn't realize Mm -hmm. like you have, like you're saying, like those three circles. And I've come to believe that starting with that contextual culture linguistic will then inform you of most of what you need to know with regards to the motivational, which then will mostly, it's almost like if you don't have those two of those three, the other one doesn't matter. And in my opinion, I feel like you can get to that third piece. If you start, you're going to get the biggest bang for your buck, biggest return on investment. We're really into efficiency with, with the fact that we know how um, accessibility is such a big deal and being able to get as many BHCs to see as many patients as possible And you can't do this unless you're able to be efficient. So I'm always looking for, okay, which domino can I knock over, which is going to give me the other dominoes. So I think starting with that 
uh, contextual, cultural, linguistic piece will then tell you about the motivation. And you can also extrapolate from there uh, their, I guess, abilities to, like you said, absorb and enact that information. I think it's interesting that you bring up efficiency, Bridget, because in my opinion, some of the problems when we're not addressing patients at the appropriate level of health literacy comes from kind of this misguided, like, I just got to move quick and give my recommendations and move on. And I can ask at the end, any questions? But if I start to get a sense that, oh no, there's a blank stare, they're not getting this, I've just got to ignore that and move past it. And because in the sense of time and having people bring all their pill bottles and discerning between the blue pill and the purple pill and the, the round one versus the oval one, that takes a lot of time, but we're just like, you might as well just throw it straight out the window. How Like you can go as quick as you can or whatever, but if you're not connecting with an understanding and pausing to see that disconnect or pausing to notice, because I think, so my, I, I would be totally open to you guys correcting me, but the last time I taught our residents about health literacy, it wasn't recommended to do a global health literacy screening, like for all of our patients all of the time. And I think that's sort of some of that balance between we have a great podcast in the past called death by screeners that we can uh, link to in the show notes, but this balance of like, you know, not everything has to be a formalized assessment. And yet part of our consideration and working with patients needs to be starting from an assumption that they don't have the health literacy, that they don't have the medical knowledge that we have as someone working in healthcare and then work up to the place where we reach their point of understanding. Um, because we can, we can lose a lot when we make assumptions. Yeah. And this is to me where I think a good team comes into play. You know, when I've worked well with, uh, say a diabetes educator, um, or a nutritionist, um, who's really in tune with, their role in terms of promoting health literacy, right? Because a lot of what they're going to be doing is educating patients and trying to meet them where they're at with regard to their diet or their understanding of the self-management of the condition. And if they're able to alert me and the provider as a BHC as to like, hey, actually this patient is not absorbing the key information. So a very little confidence that they're going to be able to enact everything that was told to them at their last visit, then that helps recalibrate all of us, hopefully as a team to make adjustments. And so that essentially, because I think you're right, Grace, you can't, I don't think that one person can do this well on their own. Like it's too hard to do all the core education around the disease condition on their own and be fully attentive to context and cultural, social, linguistic factors, and be attentive to the motivational factors. And by the way, address any co-occurring issues, right? Like, like they're just too hard for one person to do all of that. And so, but when the team mates understand their roles and are able to do their parts well, and then hand that person off in a, in a way that makes really good sense, and I think the the tricky part among teams is really set coordinated goals so that you don't have like the physician giving, you know, four or five goals on that visit 
And then I'm as a BHC going to come in and add two more The nutritionist going to come in and add, you know, an additional three, you know, clearly that's going to overwhelm anybody, but particularly will likely lead to a mismatch, whether it's with the literacy level, the ability to understand or the motivational level, the ability to kind of activate themselves, you know? So to me, they don't, I always think about, boy, you need, that's why you need well-functioning teams that are handing a patient off in a way that is um, more um, coordinated and complex than I think oftentimes we envision care teams. And honestly, I'm just going to jump in real quick. Sorry, guys. Um, I'm just excited about this because of the evolution of you know, I was taught the standard, the PCP, because of all the reports, the one who gets you in on the handoff. And, and I think that for that time, it made sense as integrated care was just blossoming. But now in our system, the vast, vast, vast majority of PCPs want us to go in first as BHCs. And so when we, you have somebody who hasn't been there in a while, brand new patient or patient with uh, multiple chronic medical conditions, they're always like, you know what, you go in first. And then when I come out, I set the stage for the PCP. So, you know, in that first visit, I'm gathering their context. I'm gathering where, you know, what that collaboration of like with you and the patient about what they think they can do. So you're getting the motivation piece, that uh, cultural contextual piece. So two out of three are already done and you're serving it to your PCPs on a platter. And then they're able to I mean, think about that, right? They're able to learn from that. In that informal conversation, you're basically training them to see it through that lens as, they're, as you're making this new game plan and say, okay, well, we went over this, this, and this. Here's what they're capable of at this time. This is what they're telling me. Here's what the barriers they have going on. And the PCP is like, oh, wow, yeah, totally makes sense. So that when I go in there, I need to do this and this. And it's like, yep, cool. And this isn't a long process. I mean, this is like 60 seconds, right? And that's how our team has found in many cases is more useful to not only the patient, to the PCP, to myself, because I don't have to go and undo things, uh, is to be able to go in first. So it's something that just kind of has been rampant through our system, just very organic. We don't have any official workflows. Um, and I just can't speak highly enough of that, of that process. I think another way that going in before the physician helps to build the patient's health literacy is that you can ask things like, okay, so you're working with Dr. Smith on your diabetes. What are your concerns about your diabetes? What do you understand about it? And so many times patients are like, well, I, I have this thing. And so we can help them narrow in and advocate for themselves. There's those uh, principles of agency and communion and we're forming and, you know, and forming our own bond with the patients and strengthening the bond that the patients have with their providers, but also helping empower them to articulate their questions and advocate for themselves you know, if we start with what are your questions instead of ending with any questions that shifts the whole thing. And we can help give patients some language to what they're feeling or what their concerns are. So then they can say them. And I've even sometimes been like, would you like me to help you share this concern with your doctor? I had a patient one time that was like, please don't tell my doctor, but my anxiety has been terrible. And I've been using marijuana to cope. And I was like, well, So then we had a whole conversation about 
this is collaborative and let's talk about your fears of not telling your doctor. And the uh, patient's family and the doctor were like family friends and she was worried, just uh, nervous. She knows what sort of his values are. They share a faith tradition and all of this. And so she was worried. And so I was able to really provide some support around that and encourage her to tell him. I was like, well, since you have asthma, we might want to let him know. Like, <laughs> um, and and then she did, and it was fine. But in that way, you know, we were talking about some of the things that they she hadn't thought of and helping her to express that, and then helping her talk about what that would be like to say that. And so I think that really builds up patients' health literacy as well, because one of the points you made at the beginning, Tipu, that I want to come back to you is that it's not just about understanding, but it's about the doing, being able to make decisions about their health, to follow through with plans for their health. And that's such a key part of this too. Because at the heart of what you're saying, and I think tying a lot of these things, regardless of levels of health literacy, I mean, technically, you know, there are most of our patients, even if they have a high degree, let's just say they have master's or even a PhD in mathematics or English may not be well versed with the healthcare system or navigating that system uh, in a meaningful way to begin with, right? So the health literacy is a factor in most people's lives, the, the higher or low. But at the heart of it is the relationship that we have with the patient that really overcomes the deficits and the barriers that are there. Even in, if you look at the diabetes distress scale, one of the items is your relationship with your doctor. Like that's an active component that they have flagged for self-management of diabetes over the long haul of your life. And so that's where I think BATs can come in and kind of offset that, right? Even if they have some things that they can't say, I usually ask, like, how is your relationship with your doctor? Like, are you comfortable? Do you feel like you can say what you need to say? Do you feel like you're hurt? And in those kind of things. And if they're not, it's, you know, we become the filter that can reset that relationship or advocate for a different situation for the patient. So building context uh, and kind of overcoming the deficits that somebody may have through the relationship brings it right back to that medicine becoming a team sport, right? Like that's where we can come in and kind of swoop in in ways that others can't. Not that they can't, but because of the pressures and other things that they have, uh, we add that extra dimension. I just want to, as a side note, advocate for a future podcast on this whole idea of how we organize ourselves as teams, because I think it's core to actually addressing these issues like health literacy. And I think, Bridget, your point, I've seen that as well. I'm sure others here have seen it where, yeah, when your providers and your teams get a little bit more sophisticated, they start thinking differently about delivering care. And they're like, wait a second, like it actually... Like in my head, I'm talking as a physician, in my head, it's faster if I just go in and see the patient, get it done, and then move on to my next patient. But in practice, it's actually faster and more efficient if I have my teammate go in because they're actually, this visit's going to be more about how they set things up. And then I can go in and wrap things up super quick, right? And and I think that that just is worth its own discussion. I think that's a really cool idea. I have made a note. Yeah, and I know this is a little off topic because I think, um, but maybe connected to what Naftali and Bridget were saying, right? And Grace, I think you alluded to this too, is the warm handoff, we kind of relied on the halo effect, right? The halo effect from the physician and the trust that they have, we're kind of inheriting that as we walk into the room. 
as integrated care evolves, I wonder if there is the halo effect from the BHC in return, right? Like we were part of the team. We, we own the patient's care as much as the physician does. We uh, want to do the heavy lifting with them uh, and uh, be as helpful as we can, right? And there is a lot that happens in that, right? And I've had patients where I had a, a patient that I saw a few weeks ago, uh, the physician saw the patient and then I went in and poor thing, like she's, she had a um, OB-GYN procedure that re-traumatized her. I walked into the room. She's literally like clamping onto the, the chair and like sitting at the edge and her other hand is like clamping onto the computer on the wall, right? And she was just sitting like intense, like a hyperventilating, not present at all and just really cycling through stuff. And then, you know, spent time with her, calmed her down. And in weeks after when she came back, functioning better, symptoms still, you know, like she needs a surgery that she doesn't have money to pay for. So we're working to kind of get her the funds that she needs. But I know that she's felt more comfortable knowing that there is a team along with the physician, right? Like that she's, she's like, I'm so glad to see you today. And you have no idea what difference you made last time kind of thing. And, and not, I think our resident had like three patients scheduled right after that. Right. So, and so stepping in to help him. And so then updating him just made it work a lot better. So plug for the other podcasts of this, uh, you know, just the halo transfer. Right. Well, particularly, particularly in your settings, because uh, and well, I should say our settings, because I'm in a residency setting also where the continuity might be more the BHC than the residents who rotate through every three years. So I've, I have patients now who, you know, I've seen longer than than residents have, you know, in the clinic. They've cycled through various rotating and, positions. And dare we say some of these basic rules uh, that we were trained on can change based on the context. So when a lot of this stuff was coming out, it made sense because it wasn't necessarily developed in a residency. And so I think, was it you, Neftali, you and uh, Dave's podcast, you were talking about the pivoting. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's for another, but that just popped up in my mind of what you were, you and Dave were talking about on the PCBH corner where it's this constant iteration and pivoting and getting information. And that I think it was one of your biggest pet peeves was just kind of this like kind of superficial understanding of things uh, and being like, okay, I have my script for going to do integrated care. And it's like, no, you need to know the deep principles, the, the, the roots so that you can then adjust. I, you probably said it a lot better than whatever I just said, but I yeah, yeah, no, no. <laughs> and I, I, I think it, I think it relates to this conversation too, as well, because the context will drive how you address these things, right? So I want to be cognizant of the fact that we all are in pretty well-developed settings. And there may be listeners out there who are like solo practitioners out there working with one provider and they don't have a nutritionist, they don't have a diabetes educator, they don't have a well, you know, lots of resources at their disposal. And so, yeah, you need to understand sort of the principles of what we're talking about to address um, health literacy and, and combine what you're able to do with what the provider is able to do in a way that makes sense for your setting, which practically speaking for me, having worked in some settings like that has meant that I have to upskill a little bit. Like I have to know enough about diabetes to engage 
a patient effectively and, and bridge that health literacy gap when that's needed. Because in some situations, I can't get to the motivational interviewing piece or, or perhaps a component of the motivational inter- interviewing piece is that the patient's current uh, pre-contemplative stage or contemplation stage is related to a health literacy gap. And if that's my conceptualization, then, and I don't have anybody to you know, hand that person off to, then that falls on me to do the best I can with that person to bridge that health literacy gap. I try to demystify this for new learners because it can feel daunting, like, oh boy, I've got to like learn everything about diabetes. No, I mean, you, you end up having to learn really basic things about diabetes, like learning about what an A1C is, right? Hey, it's the average measure of the sugar in your blood, right? Of course, it's much more complicated than that, but that's enough of an understanding to communicate with someone and help them understand why is it that the provider keeps talking to me about this A1C thing, right? And so just learning some really basic pieces like that can be really helpful to them when you're that solo practitioner, design an intervention for the patient that addresses their health literacy and that then allows you to build on that for motivational components and and even just problem solving around logistics, like when to take your medicine and things like that. And our PCPs do that all the time. They take little uh, snippets from us. And when they maybe only have one BHC or two BHCs, they're able to do that. Uh, I was working with a resident just recently. And every time the patient said that she was struggling with something or, oh, I didn't do that, he would um, provide her education. So she'd say, well, I, I, I didn't take my medication. He'd say, okay, well, here's why it's important. And then each time he'd drop some education. Now from his lens, you know, he's just doing the best job that he could, but we talked afterwards. And I said, if you just make one tiny change that when somebody tells you they didn't do something, instead of offering them education, you just did the evocation of asking them what the barrier was or what got in the way. I was like, you're going to be able to like do a huge amount of this on your own. So I think that's another important thing is that we're all learning from each other and taking snippets and it might not be perfect, but let's do the best that we can until we can continue to advocate for more resources and more team members. Well, and also until we can make larger system change. Um, We're talking a whole lot about the individual and how we address this with an individual patient. Um, But I think there's a lot of opportunities when we think about health literacy to think about community level involvement, family engagement, whether that is policy change and advocacy at the school level, through public health partnerships, um, or even just like family and group intervention. I think alternative models of treatment like group visits make for a really interesting opportunity to build health literacy uh, in a setting that is maybe a Uh, easier for some people to learn in as they're hearing other people's concerns and struggles and receiving that support. We have so much work to do that we can feel really pulled into that. And it is important work that we do. And yet a lot of the work that we have to do is because our system is very broken. So any times that we have partnerships at the community level, that we have opportunities to affect change in other larger systems to build the larger health literacy, I think it is really something maybe that we're missing that could be opportunities to build this up at a larger level. Yeah, I can agree more. I think um, 
it's it's unfortunately it swims upstream of the culture of well over our overall culture in the United States, but also the culture of of medical care to incorporate um, particularly families. But I think that you know if you look at most chronic conditions in particular, whether it's say diabetes, which is always near the top of the list, cardiovascular disease, even things like asthma, the the loading of when we think about health literacy, the loading of the family's knowledge around these conditions and how that loads onto eventual behavior change is is pretty significant, right? I mean that that's the that's the thing. And so I think it's it's even though again we have to kind of swim upstream to do this, it is pretty crucial when we start thinking about how to have the most efficacious intervention to say, okay, if we identify a health literacy gap here, it's not just this one individual in, the, in, the, in their sphere usually. It's usually several individuals and bringing those folks in together to do education around this is you know, huge. Obviously, the most obvious example is like nutrition, right? Um, because nutrition, food is a, usually a communal thing, um, at least on some level as far as you know, food purchasing, families purchase food usually together and then, you know, cooking, which often is families cooking together. Right. But there's even lots of other uh, components to managing chronic illnesses that incorporate those contingencies in the patient's context. Right. Even, even just a, a, a daughter who's able to uh, because they have been involved in care are able to cue their mom with diabetes. Hey, um, you know, shouldn't we go take a walk today? Right. I mean, what, what's going to be the most, the biggest factor in motivating someone to take a walk if someone asks them to, right. <laughs> that's, that's like the, that, that's like the easiest intervention you could possibly make. Right. Um, but it, it does take swimming a little bit upstream of the way things are and the way things are set up because we don't, we don't, the system's not set up for that. So that's a point well taken, Grace. To jump off of some of the earlier things that you're saying, Neftali, like the attitude towards health literacy, it's not like an individual provider thing, right? Like there is things that we can all do better. And I just want to give permission to developing the ATs out there we're not fully in the know, right? When we go to a primary care setting. So if you don't know something, that's awesome because that's when you know that you have some learning points or gaps that you can cover that you can get into. I obviously, I didn't know what an A1C was, what a blood pressure reading, you know, all of the uh, numbers. And you just ask, right? You like learn one thing at a time. Uh, I learned what titration is like over time, right? Like I didn't know that, know that in day one. The other thing that we know is like with patients, 80% of the material given to them at the end of a visit is forgotten when they leave the office, right? This is actually based out of like surveys that they did. And 50% of what is remembered is actually remembered incorrectly or misunderstood, right? And about 10% is retained accurately. And so um, building the relationship, knowing the context and having that um, deeper connection is actually going to probably ameliorate a lot of those deficits that's already built into the healthcare system. One of the things that we'll put in the show notes is the attributes or the 10 attributes of a health literate organization. So this upstream thing that we want to probably intervene in is like beginning to reflect on 
how do you and your clinic and the leadership in the clinic think about health literacy as a core component of delivering equitable healthcare, right? And so, um, so you know, one is like, is it part of your uh, institutions or clinics mission, its structure, its operations? So it's like ensuring that all of our communications are at a sixth grade level so that it's easily accessible, right? Then, then we use a lot of images in our communications that we provide to patients so that it's not all written text, right? So those kind of things really matter in what patients uh, can take home and make sense of, right? If it's like a lot of reading, they may not. It's like preparing the workforce. So does the medical assistance, does the front desk staff understand a lot of the things related to using plain language and asking them for uh, things in culturally sensitive ways. It's like using health literacy strategies and interpersonal communication and confirms understanding at all points of contact. So it's not just on the BHC or the PCP, it's all points of the contact that the patient makes when they're in the clinic. So we'll link that. It's a good read. Um, we um, have our residents review that and think about the education that they give to their patients uh, when the patients leave. I can't tell you everything that we have in Cerner, horrible, like horrible, like health literacy oriented stuff, right? It's just, it's just like, like pages and pages, like five, <laughs> six pages of text uh, in font size 10 or 12, right? And so it's not the most friendly patient-centered thing that our, at least our EMR has. So we had to rebuild a lot of those. Well, that, that's a really great point related to health literacy, because I think a lot of this stuff gets infected with a little CYA, you know, so it's like, so what gets printed out in those after visit summaries seems to me to be more like, all right, to say that we did the adequate education around this topic area and give you all of the possible options for treatment for this condition and whatever, we're going to give you these 10 pages of stuff, as you said, that, that, um, you know, most of which is irrelevant. I mean, how many of us have like, literally, I have literally walked out of my doctor's office and like just tossed the after visit summary with all these patient instructions. Cause this was like, it's, it's not, not engaging at all. Right. Um, but it, it's to that point of, you know, a really a uh, strategic health literacy approach is going to be a lot simpler and a lot more targeted, and um, and 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 it's going to be more visual and it's going to be more engaging, and it's not going to be as comprehensive as what the standard stuff is out there used to explain X, Y, or Z, you know, X, uh, condition or or set of interventions or whatever, you know? So, and I think that's part of it. It's just like, you have to have, well, first of all, as an organization, you have to have that mindset. Um, and then as an individual clinician, you have to have that confidence. That's okay. You know, that, that you, that, that if you just walk away and that patient has one image in their mind about a particular thing they learned about their condition, and that leads to something they were asked to do, that is okay, right? I think the pressure on medicine to get 20 things done at that one visit reduces the likelihood that even one of those things will actually result in, some, in actionable change. Yeah, I think the, the tendency or the enticement to do heavy 
two or three interventions versus like one simple change for the next two weeks. Uh, I mean, I can't tell you what difference it made as I was, you know, learning to be a BHC because I had this sense that I had to like do values and at the same time I had to do some behavior, you know, like all of these things meant into one. But uh, the fact that I can just let the patient do one thing at a time. And that also often uh, we had a situation where the patient has like six medications and she only wants to take two. Right. That's all she's going to do, no matter what we tell her. Right. And so our negotiation with the with the doc was like, help us understand what is the most important ones that she needs to take. And then the the PCP, uh, the resident physician was like, no, she needs to take all. I said, I get it. Right. And she's not. Right. <laughs> yeah. So knowing that she's not let's rethink what we need to do for her, you know? So it was, uh, and that was actually our, uh, um, my BHC here, um, Joanna, who kind of had to run that negotiation with the PCP. And so uh, it's really, yeah, it's one thing. And I that's like, all you get. That's all I you like. Get. I liked your and, and drop Deepu. That was very, <laughs> that was beautiful. It's like, instead of, but, you know, and yeah, no buts. it's, and she's not gonna. She's not gonna. She's not gonna do it. I love it. Yeah. Another great example of this is uh, uh, pediatric well visits, right? So, um, at one of the clinics I worked at, we used to actually do the uh, anticipatory guidance portion of those well visits. So we'd go in first and do the anticipatory guidance list, and then the physician would do the rest of the well well visit uh, for every well child check, which is great. Um, but what we learned as we started training on doing the anticipatory guidance portion was that, holy smokes, like there's just so much stuff there. It's impossible. Like you have to spend like five seconds literally on a topic area. You know, you go from feeding to sleep to um, toileting, you know, et cetera. And you got to go boom, 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 boom through all of this. And you're supposed to be providing anticipatory guidance. You're supposed to be doing education. You're basically bridging a literacy gap there. And it's just absurd that they that there's a sense that that actually is going to result in, you know, some substantial learning on the on the on the patient's part. You know, the mom or dad sitting in that room is overwhelmed to begin with. And then they're getting all this stuff thrown at them about how they should be doing this and how they should be doing this. And, you know, uh, that kind of a thing. And we really introduced the idea to the pediatricians around, Hey, um, okay, we will do our checklist things. We know you need to do your checklist. We'll go through, but we're going to focus in and our education is going to be on like one or two elements at the most that we'll focus in based on what, what the patient's most interested in, you know, if they're interested in how to help their child sleep better, we'll do some focused work on that, but the rest is just going to be like, you know, check, 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 check. Cause it's just nothing in the world of even like teaching tells you that any of that makes any sense, let alone, you know, any healthcare evidence around, around the efficacy of that. This has been a great conversation. And I love that we 
ended with some really specific concrete examples. You know, we spanned everything from the individual patient presenting in the room to how we collaborate about that as a team to how integrated care and the interdisciplinary approach is kind of especially adept to supporting patients and building health literacy. And then came back around to some specific examples and our, you know, perennial encouragement to don't build the whole wall, just put one brick. Um, just that incremental change, which is also another show that we've done in the past that we can link in the notes. I, I hate to bring us to a close, but we are running out of time and we still have a special segment to do. So let us go to that now. I am so excited for our special segment this month to introduce our brand new co-host. So we have um, had a call that went out on our podcast a few months ago and on the listserv, and we had such a wonderful response. And spoiler alert, one of the things that I'm hoping to do is to pull in special segments from so many of those voices of the talented people in our community to lend their perspective to the podcast. However, we also, as a result of that call, have a new co-host. So I am excited to introduce Dr. Jen Thomas. Jen is a board-certified family physician with Morris Hospital is her health system. And I am going to kind of shift from here, Jen, and have you give us just a little bit of your background. Introduce yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Grace. This is a, a dream come true for me. I've been a podcast fan and listener since trying to think back spring of 18, I stumbled on the podcast. So it's so surreal to like um, chat with you and, and meet you in person. You're all your guys' voices on the podcasts are so familiar to me. It's like my, you know, friends I've never met before, but listen to and learn from. So this is so cool to get to be a part of the, the conversation. So yay, happy to be here. Um, yeah. So my name is Jen Thomas. I'm a family medicine trained physician. My health system is Morris Hospital. We're an independent nonprofit community-based organization that's about an hour and a half southwest of Chicago. So we're definitely more like small town rural. We've got a, a wide geographic area of small communities we serve that all feed in Morris or kind of the edge of Chicago suburbia, kind of northern Illinois region. So um, I've been with Morris since right out of training. So I finished my family medicine residency in 2010 and joined up with Morris Hospital and I've been there ever since. So um, yeah, my offices are in um, two smaller communities, Braidwood and Gardner, Illinois, and been doing uh, the full scope of primary care there for going on going to be 12 years uh, this fall. That's exciting. So I'm yeah. curious to hear like maybe further back in your background, yeah. how did yeah. you even get into healthcare and become a physician in the first place? Yeah. Oh, good question. So I was always kind of the like, you know, nerdy science kid. I loved chemistry and biology growing up. So I think I was always kind of drawn to, you know, science and medical things. Um, you know, in college, I had a bunch of really great roommates and some of them were thinking about dental school. We were, you know, I was thinking kind of med school and um, you know, I stumbled upon family medicine as a specialty because we had some really great trainers. I went to med school at SIU, um, Illinois and Springfield and primary care is like a huge, uh, area of, uh, expertise and excellence there. So there's a lot of training and emphasis, Hey, primary care and family medicine is a really great specialty. So thanks to that influence, I was like, yeah, family medicine, why not? Let's, <laughs> let's give that a try. And it just kind of worked out with my life with, um, with my husband, he's a uh, high school teacher, kind of where he was working and where the residencies were. So I just kind of landed in uh, the Chicago suburbs of Hinsdale, Illinois, for my formal training and residency. And yeah, it's it's been a cool, <laughs> a cool journey um, ever since. I think 
the behavioral health piece within family medicine has always been something I've been interested in learning more about and passionate in doing more of and really kind of struggled in the, the past few years sort of thinking, well, how do I do that? How do I help, you know, get myself more comfortable so that some of the behavioral health stuff that comes at the door in primary care, I can have something to offer, you know, have some more expertise or something, um, you know, to help someone with those struggles. And so it was just kind of a natural fit for me. I didn't even know what integrated care formally was. I mean, that was never something that um, was part of our formal curriculum, but it's just interesting. There was this like something I knew I needed to know more about or be a part of and didn't even have language for it, but here it is and it's out there and and you guys are doing it. And I've been so inspired to to tag along and learn from you guys. So yeah, (laughs) that's a little bit of my, how I got to be. So yeah, I think I hear that story a lot. You know, I work in medicine and I think we have so many family physicians who are drawn to this kind of care that lends itself so well. And I mean, there are amazing, you know, organizations in our CFHA community that are putting integrated care into specialty care, into OB, into neurology, into pediatrics. And family medicine also is just such a great blend for the understanding of the systems and the relationships and truly the mind body perspective. Um, So I I love to hear that you felt you connected with that so well. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, it's kind of that whole, your, your life story and journey and why you are where you are. Like my brother lives with serious and persistent mental illness. So, you know, watching him, you know, over the years, uh, try to navigate the health system and find services and primary care. Um, you kind of have that firsthand experience of like, oh yeah, the, the healthcare system's good, but it's not, you know, in some ways it's not great. You know, there are siloed episodes of care where it's like, man, it'd be nice if this provider talked to this provider. And, you know, a lot of that doesn't happen, uh, you know, where we would like it to, especially in, in my work in primary care. So I think all that kind of stirred together is sort of where my interests or passion for that um, came from. But um my personal journey with this was I was looking for additional like training. I was like, okay, I don't think I want to quit my day job. You know, I've, I've got four kids. <laughs> I don't think I'm going to, you know, uh, go back to a formal residency. And, you know, I know some folks do that and, you know, bless them. That's amazing to do that. But I was like, well, maybe there's something in between. Maybe there's some more training, you know, I could do. And I was literally Google searching one night, like, okay, what, what can family docs do to get, you know, training or certificates? I stumbled on a training out of uh, UC Davis, Irvine, where it was primary care psychiatry, and you could do a year-long session, um, work with a psychiatrist mentor, go to some in-person didactics, and then, you know, stuff every month to just know more about mental health in the primary care setting. I was like, ooh, that's that's cool. I could do that. <laughs> and I did. And, um, and it was really, really rewarding. And it opened so many doors for me. I remember in January of 18 was our first in-person session, and I heard of the collaborative care model. And I was like, wow, that that's cool. That could get something done. It's nice that it's in the primary care setting. You've got some care team members that, you know, are embedded with you and it's that team-based approach. I was like, that's neat. That could really, you know, be a game changer. So my mentor, um, she was an awesome psychiatrist, like, well, call up the AIM center, see what they're doing. And I was like, I can't do that. (laughs) I'm just a family doc in the Midwest. Like, who who am I? Um, And she's like, no, see what happens. And well, they call me back. And I was like, oh my gosh. So, you know, and they were so gracious. They're like, well, just tell me me about who you are, where are you working? What's your health system? What's your guys' needs? So um, just kind of said where we are very much in the beginning of looking at, you know, integration, literally from, you know, the ground up. And it just so happened they had a research study on perinatal depression and my health system took a leap of faith and 
we jumped on that study and thankfully we got some really awesome implementation coaching and that's led to a lot of cool collaborative care piece of the, the integration conversation in my health system where we've got uh, the collaborative care model now at six of our primary care sites. And it's been a really, really neat transition just in the last few years watching that bud and grow into um, several of our healthcare sites. It's, it's not, you know, simple or straightforward. It's a zigzag path where, you know, you start one initiative with, you know, depression screening and, oh, now we need to do this. So now we need to hire this person. And it's really rewarding though. It's been a really cool, just kind of right place, right time. And we really just use the moment to, to do some new, um, you know, initiatives with my health system. It's been great. So yeah. Huh. yeah. And being willing to ask and then being willing to say yes to the opportunity. That's so powerful. Uh, it, it took some, I don't know. It's not my, not my wheelhouse. Like, you know, just like, <laughs> this is new. This is like, I'm just stepping outside my comfort zone here, but, but it's been so rewarding. So just surprising. Like, wow, it's not just, I don't know. I guess I thought, you know, med school, you go out, you be a doctor and then that's it. You just be your doctor. You know, you go, you go to your practice and do your thing, and that's great. I had no idea this world of integration was out there. And it's just so rewarding and so inspiring to know that there's other things to be learned. There's other teammates and other interdisciplinary teams, people to work with and learn from. And I was like, I didn't even know that was out there. And it's just been such a cool, you know, transition to be like, yeah, you can, it doesn't have to just be the standard, you know, day in, day out, same stuff, different day um, medical work. And it's, it's actually been a really rewarding kind of anti-burnout feeling for me of like rediscovering why, why I'm in this field and why I like this work. Oh my gosh. Aren't we so much more effective in our work when we actually are enjoying it and right? also connected to <laughs> totally. the meaning of why yes. we're doing it and the yes. purpose of it. So that's absolutely. Amazing. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so what does your practice look like these days and kind of what do you see in the future for yourself? Yeah, so um, I have two primary care sites that I work at, and we have um, the collaborative care model there. So what's different about that is I have a co-located embedded behavioral health care manager within that collaborative care model. Um, so we are able to work directly together to help uh, screen, diagnose, and treat behavioral health stuff in my primary care practice, which means we now have a the third corner of the collaborative care triangle, a consultant psychiatrist. So it's really great. We're doing that, you know, uh, population-based care where we're doing universal depression screening. We're identifying certain folks that would benefit from the collaborative care model. And then we have that case-based discussion where um, Christine, my care manager, and then the psychiatrists on my team get together every week and talk about the patients on the panel and um, make treatment recommendations that they then communicate back to me as the PCP. Um, and they can offer that to the patient. And we, um, you know, do that, that new piece of it to me, at least in primary care is that um, measurement-based treatment to target, right? So um, I knew of the PHQ-9, you know, as a family medicine doctor, I never did it. <laughs> I mean, it was never, it was always just that subjective thing with depression, like, oh, how's your, your mood? Are you better on your sertraline? Cool, that's good. Um, it wasn't until I started learning about integration that it was like, right, there is a way to really measure that. If there's an objective you know, and I mean, that was just so um, eye-opening to me, like, oh, right. And when I talk about it with my primary care colleagues, you know, using that medical language, like blood pressure, a data point. And oh, okay. That makes sense. It's not the whole story, right? And it's certainly not with depression, but it's a, uh, a guidepost and, you know, getting to where I can now scan that chart and go, oh, PHQ-9 score of, you know, 15 or 20 red flag, like blood pressure of 160 over 100. Uh-oh, we better check in on that treatment plan. Maybe somebody needs some tweaking or another approach or 
whatever, you know, just that we need to um, intervene or act in some way. And and that's been such a game changer. It's just so interesting that like that never was something I um, was formally trained to do. And now with ongoing training and exposure, like, oh, yeah, that, that's something we can, you know, a skill set we can get even, you know, mid-career. It doesn't have to be we stop learning, <laughs> you know, in, in residency and formal training or are over. So, yeah. Um, so, right, we're, we're doing that in my two primary care offices. And it's been great. Um, we're really feeling like we're, um, you know, identifying more behavioral health stuff and have some to offer to those folks. Awesome. Well, I know that one of the things next to you is being on our podcast and I'm really excited and just thankful for having you here. If someone wanted to get in touch with you, uh, do you have any contact information that you'd be willing to share? Yeah. Yeah. My hospital email would be great. The J Thomas, T-H-O-M-A-S at morrishospital.org. Yeah. Shoot me an email. Would love to connect. Awesome. Well, I am excited and we will hear your voice on the podcast coming up in the months to come. Awesome. All right. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you for joining us. Okay. And then as always, we will end with a closing from Deepu. All right. Uh, We talked a lot about relationships at the core of even bridging the gaps uh, sometimes presented by uh, health literacy. I want to go back to something Dave Diamond always says. It's all about love at the end. Be love, do love. So this is a quote from Rumi. uh, And he says, your task is not to seek for love, but to merely seek and find all the barriers within yourself against it and may that help you in your work and in your life thank you Deepu thank you Bridget and Naftali Monica we missed you this week and we'll see everybody again next month Mm -hmm.